0: Welcome to Healthcare WTF, a podcast where we ask the tough questions concerning our present healthcare system. Where is it going? What problem does it create? The good, the bad? How fair is it? And who are the winners and losers? Healthcare WTF, what are the facts? Welcome everyone, I'm Dr. Christine Hambry and you've joined me and my friend Radhika Nath. Hi Radhika. Hi, Christine. How are you this wonderful day? I'm good. You're here with us, and we'd like to talk about healthcare, what's the facts, WTF. We're excited about today's program because we have a guest. Who's with us today, Radhika? Well, it's my dear
1: friend, uh, Dr. Madhavi Pat. She's an internal medicine specialist, and she's been um, also trained in public uh, health at the Johns Hopkins University. Is right. it Johns
2: Hopkins University? Is that how it's called? Yeah, yeah, Johns Hopkins University and Johns Hopkins Health and Hospital System. There you go. The actual medical center.
1: Yeah. We're so, so Johns Hopkins. So, that's great. Johns Hopkins, yes. Uh, so, yes. So, yeah, thank you for being with us, Madhavi. And the reason we have Madhavi here is we're going to talk about physician burnout today.
0: Right, Christine? Right. So, um, I'm a physician and I've been retired a number of years. But when Rodica and I were talking recently, I realized that she, like so many people and really most of you, I believe that are listening, have interactions with your physicians and with your care providers, nurses, NPs, PAs, and you walk away and you say, wow, what was wrong with that? And, and you just keep thinking, it just didn't fulfill some need I had for connection. And you keep going to these appointments and you keep walking out saying, geez, what's missing? And I gotta tell you that from the other side, on the provider side, there is a crisis going on. And you are feeling the end result of that crisis. And the crisis is provider burnout. So, you know, when I
1: think about the term burnout, Christine, I'm thinking about people who just, ah, I need a vacation. This is just so hard. And I'm like burning out and, oh, well, it's time for my two week vacation. And if I go off for two weeks and come back, I'll be a better person, which usually most professions, this is true also. So what is different about physician burnout, Christine?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, the, the difference is it's deep-seated. It's really deeply embedded in the system in which the physicians, and and we'll just say providers, in which the nurses, providers, NPPAs, all of those are working. And the, the structural environment in which they're working has changed so much. In the last decade, we went from a, uh, a healthcare system where over 80% of the practices were privately owned to only 20% of the practices being privately owned. So that means way over the majority of our healthcare today is corporately owned. And when it's corporately owned, they're going to have different ways of, of looking at what's happening each day. And they have production schedules and they have different ways of monitoring their
1: production. So wait, wait, Christine, wait, wait, wait. Don't I want to be my own boss? Isn't that easy isn't that better i mean i can set my own schedule i can do my own things or on the flip side i might want to ask well if somebody else is taking all my overhead and i just need to show up i mean is
0: that is that easier well it would seem like it it would seem like oh great i just gave away all my autonomy to this corporation and now my life will be so much easier But the truth of the matter is most physicians didn't find that to change to corporation reduced their depression, their anxiety, or their suicide rate at all. So, for instance, in the past year, we have seen the suicide rate of physicians rise to be two to four times that of the general public. Is that right? I didn't know this. And the four times really represents female. So the real brunt or the worst case scenario is female physicians are uh, creating for themselves, taking their lives at just an unprecedented number. So we really have to look at it as a health care crisis. And the Surgeon General, three years, four years ago, created a fourth arm to our directives for our health care. So there's this thing called the triple aim. Yep. And it was that we wanted to provide healthcare mm-hmm. to all people affordably and have it uh, sort of integrated. Yes. Well, then the fourth arm came recently because they realized, and we won't be able to do this if we have this crisis with the providers, which is they are exhausting themselves. So burnout is exhaustion physically, emotionally, mentally. That's one part of it, but the other parts are even more damning to the healthcare. They are the parts where the provider feels that they don't make a very big impact, that what they're doing with their efforts and with their care really isn't changing anything. That's a burnout factor. Yeah, kind of sad, isn't
1: it? Right. So, So Madhavi, I know that a few years ago, you changed your practice style. In fact, you told me about this. So but I don't know, I didn't realize why. So would you speak a little bit to your experience,
2: your background? Yes. And I just to piggyback on what um, Christine just said, I think that is, a for me personally, that was a big thing, that there are so many social, environmental determinants of what a patient walks in with in terms of their expectations and their um, experiences and I think the interaction that they have with the physician, there are so many things beyond our control. Like it is a little bit frustrating and demoralizing to think, you know, well, I can just put a tiny little Band-Aid on a much, much bigger problem here. And both the provider and the patient walk away from that encounter feeling like they could they didn't get anything out of it on both sides. And so I was practicing, I practiced in a, uh, several different environments over my career from urgent care settings to hospital-based practices to a managed care organization. Um, and then about five years ago, I switched to a direct pay model of practice, sometimes called a concierge practice or a personalized medical practice. And the, the carnal of why, the real reason why I did that was primarily to cut down the number of patients that I had to see on any given day. Um, and, you can't do that in whether it's a physician-owned insurance-based independent practice or if it's a hospital-run or managed care type organization. And what Christine was saying before, that changing from you know a, a corporate-run type of medical practice to an autonomous practice, while it did change a lot of things in terms of, you know, the number of patients that I'm able to see and the time I get to spend with them, there's still um, a fundamental Uh, disconnect between what the healthcare system, at least from a primary care standpoint, is designed to do and what the expectations of patients and society at large is wanting from that interaction. Um, But so so one of the reasons, like I said, was to decrease the number of patients that I see um, on a daily basis. And and the very reason to do that, obviously, is to get to know your patients, to understand the upstream issues that they're dealing with. To better handle the acute problems that they're coming in for, which often are not even the main problems. That's like, you know, I can deal with blood pressure with a blood pressure medication, but some of the reasons for their elevated blood pressure are so intertwined in so many other things that not only was I not necessarily trained to deal with, but I have no control over. So just being able to have that extra time with patients and not be um, a slave to make sure that all my reimbursements come back and that I wasn't having to see patients on a 15 minute template like the corporation wanted it to be is what drove me to do more of a personalized direct pay model.
1: So so you're you're touching on something that as a patient I have faced so many times. I have physicians that I have to get to know every single time because you know when I change a job, when my husband gets a new job, uh when we change insurance the physicians that we may be have we may have seen previously may or may not be in network. And if I want to see them, then I have to get to know them. They have to get to know me, what kind of a patient I am. And it is so frustrating because it actually, there are so many times I put off appointments because I don't have any relationship with the physician that I want to go and see them and tell them what's going on, because every time it's brand new and it, it feels invasive, it feels like a
0: chore. Right. And I think, Radhika, I think that's the, the saddest part of watching the infrastructure change was that the erosion of the connection, the erosion of the the healing connection between the provider and the patient just went away because of all of these logistical changes that happened. The shorter appointment, the fact that your insurance would change your provider on a regular basis because either you changed insurance or the provider list changed. So this constant churning of relationship created a erosion of connection. And healing happens when there's connection, when I truly care about you and when you understand that I'm caring about you and when you know that my thoughts are the most astute and helpful for you. And And there's a compact that I will follow your advice and and, and
1: and why it is important for me to take this medicine and not cut it into half. And which also,
0: you know, I mean- Which was part of the burnout. Many physicians recognized that what they said was not gonna be followed. That 50% of the time the patients would walk out the door and not be able to afford that medicine even though it was your desire that they follow that regimen. Right, so it's really been a very huge erosion, wouldn't you say, Mavia? It's just eroded things. A
2: hundred percent. I mean, the statistics are astounding. Fifty percent of patients walk away; they leave with the prescription, and less than half of those people are even going to fill that prescription, or understand, or agree with what the physician or provider has told them in terms of why they need it. So that they, they come at it with a distrust because there's not a connection. There is not a relationship between the provider and the patient. And to be 100% honest, it's not even just that the patient If you are seeing 30 people that you know that you may not see again in the next year because the average patient only stays with their primary care physician like less than three years now based on employment reasons, insurance. Wait, 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 what did you say? Less than three years? I believe that most patients now and this might change ac- across demographics. Older patients do tend to stick with their primary care providers a little bit longer, but your working class, but your working um, age population from you know, late 20s to 50s, say, they don't stick with their average primary care uh, with their primary care physician for more than three years on average.
1: So that's about three visits, if if we say say an annual visit. So you can, can I, I start, start to in to there
0: that to... it's, it's even worse than that because provider are patients are largely getting their insurance through their employers and their employers have annual meetings and at their annual meetings they decide what, what that's they're that's going true. to provide and if they switch and which they insurance companies are banking on i've heard this at meetings that the insurances are hoping and planning that companies will change insurances often because that's the longer you, they stay with you the more likely you are to get sick and need them so insurance companies really love and benefit from the fact that, that the companies under which many people prov- are given their insurance are changing all the time,
2: which and so then goes in the provider changes all the time, right? Which then t- piggybacks onto the concept of they're not invested in preventive care and wellness care because the person on their, uh, payroll or on their insurance roster that's not going to be they're not going to be responsible for the downstream consequences of not doing that preventive care Um, and that's why you know a lot of insurances now thankfully do in general cover for things like mammograms colonoscopies and and things like that but in the past they didn't even do that because it isn't their problem because in less than three years or so that patient is no longer going to be on their insurance uh, so
1: wait i have another question then So, uh, Christine, Madhavi, you're both talking about this and I'm thinking, you know, uh, most insurance companies say you can go straight to the specialist and everything because, you know, there are different levels of care provided by different kind of specialists. Is this harder on primary care? Because I know that primary care in our system is not as fully, you know, uh, support it B- basically because, you know, with the PPO HMO models, we're allowed to go to any specialist we want and bypass the primary care who used to, in the previous time, have a very strong relationship with the patient, be able to guide them and say, well, the entirety of the symptoms that you are presenting with seem to be gastrointestinal versus respiratory or whatever. You know, primary care used to be the home for where patients went and had a relationship with somebody over many years.
2: Because with specialists, you you, you use specialists
0: less anyway,
2: right? Let's help you understand
0: that one level deeper, which is, let me just blurb out some letters for you. IPO, PPO, HMO, it yeah, been, This healthcare system has been through so many changes, but what you're describing Radhika was a managed care plan, was a plan in which you had a, a quarterback, you mm-hmm. had a primary care physician, and then they always had to have referrals so that that created paperwork. And then that gave you a, a line of flow of care to the specialist, the subspecialist, the surgeon, whatever. So you always had your primary care as, as the quarterback some of that has gotten uh diminished but our system is still largely based on that where we have a system where you have a assigned primary care physician and then everybody else after that is subspecialty care or specialty care and those are usually driven by referral so the way that um provider burnout has gotten uh worsened by our healthcare system in this sort of kind of fractured system with ipo ppo hmo is the fact that they the can- alphabet soup of healthcare. (laughs) And then there was this flow of paperwork. So if we want to talk about provider burnout, and I I appreciate Radhika as a patient, there's patient burnout for sure. There is no doubt. I go with my elderly patients to appointments. I go with younger people to appointments and it's, it's exhausting to be Mm -hmm. sitting in a waiting room. It's exhausting to be ignored. It's exhausting to have the wrong card with you. It's exhausting to, you know, I get it. But today we're talking about providers. Mm -hmm. I'm asking all the listeners to put your hat on of thinking of being on the other side of the desk. So now you're the provider, you're corporately employed, you're going to see patients at a 15 to 20 minute pace, and they're likely new to you because of the way we've designed our system. These patients that you're looking at for 15 to 20 minutes may be totally unknown to you from the past.
2: So do that all day long. Do that at that rate all day long. Can I just jump in and say, so uh, the other thing I think that the system hasn't caught up to from my perspective is that your average 65-year-old patient is on 13 different prescription Mm -hmm. medications. And they have seen an average of four different subspecialists in the past year partly because of the direct con- to consumer marketing of all kinds of things that you may or may not need and just because people are living longer and have more complex medical issues that we have to deal with so just getting that list of medications takes about 5 minutes from that person and to understand and to gather that information from everywhere that they've been and you're already 12 minutes into your 15 minute appointment and you haven't even begun to address what their actual issues are for that day and so yeah it has become such a complicated because patient care itself has become more complex in internal medicine anyway so let's, what? let's back up a little and say when we think about our healthcare system we know the most complicated
0: patients are the seniors they have the most chronic disease and multiple chronic disease and our healthcare system with medicare for all has found a way To provide a direct system for those folks to go to their primary care and then to specialists, with that payment to the doctors coming fairly quickly. When you talk about other insurance companies, those payments get so delayed and get so held up. I have a brother in law in California as a surgeon who hasn't seen payments in six months since the coronavirus started, five months, because they're holding payments and insurance companies come up with different reasons every time they send you a denial they have a different reason the forms wrong the dates wrong we need more information and so those 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 efforts to get the payment is so different in a Medicare system and in a private health care system and that also drains on the providers
2: that I is The credentialing process to get credentialed and be approved by different insurance companies to be on, you know, this plan or that plan, as frustrating and as difficult it is as for patients and healthcare consumers to do that, it is equally difficult for providers to do that. And then we have to become part of these organizations that. Band together, and then as a group have leverage to get better contracts with insurance companies. I mean, it's it's a whole different degree that you need to try and figure out how do I even get onto these insurance plans? What am I expected to? And it's fascinating to me sometimes. Patients complain to me, you know, I got this bill from your office for X number of dollars, and you were in the in the office with me for thirty seconds. How do you justify this? I look at this thing, and I said, I don't even know where these numbers come from. I didn't decide that a level nine nine two one for a visit which you know they do by time base all this stuff and you know I I'm not, is it they picked the number I don't know where they got $275 for that visit versus three and they think that I am then taking home that $275 that they see on that bill, and there's like five different columns on that EOB they get. This is what their contract, this is what they charge, this is what they're contracted for, this is what the discount rate is, this is what your copay was. And then at the end of the day, I, if I'm lucky, I'm getting maybe a quarter, a third, whatever. It changes from insurance plan. But the fundamental problem is I don't even know where that original number came from. I would have maybe even chosen to do a lower rate, but I can't do that because I'm- So wait, right, but
0: that's an phone. absolutely important part of this whole problem is that you are no longer in charge of the billing. So what people need to understand is although uh-huh. you go in and you see that provider and you want to ask them questions about, well, why did you charge this? And why are we doing this? They literally have no control over that. None of so- so ever.
1: You Correct. both are touching on something very important, you know, from a patient's perspective, somebody who walks in the doctor's office and then after the visit, they're like, oh, uh, here comes another unexpected bill and all of that. From from their perspective, you're part of the system. Right. It's easy to. And I wonder how much of that burden also leads to this burnout we're talking about, because, you know, I mean, well, you're having to you're the face. For, for me as a patient, you're the
2: face. That's exactly right. The buck does stop with the that's provider that was, right. you know, involved in your interaction. And it could be that, I, I mean, I'll get calls from patients, you know, my lab core bill was $1,000. How come it was $1,000 you didn't? And I said, well, I don't make the decisions on how much your vitamin D test will cost or how much your vitamin b 2 whatever. And at the same time, patients, oh, check this, check that, check that for me. And then I have to then take that extra time and say, well, you know, I don't know if this is going to be covered this time around. They're only going to cover it once a year. Um, do you want that? And you just need to know. And that has gotten, well, I don't know if it's better, but now labs will tell them when they go in to get their blood tests that, you know, this may not be covered. This is what you're responsible for. Do you still want this test? Which then complicates their situation because they're like, I don't know if I need this test or not. I, I like, that's what my doctor ordered. This is what, so yeah, that, that whole cost thing. And yes, we are the face of it. So I will often get Letters or stuff in the portal, patient portal messaging, or they'll come with their lab core bill, or that MRI cost. Or if we say, Yeah, I'd like you to get X test, whatever, an abdominal CT scan. Well, how much is that going to cost? Because uh, my deductible is still like $5,000. And, you know, I don't know how much a CT scan is going to cost because not only does it depend where you go, it There's so many factors that go into it. You know, if you go into a hospital-based radiology uh, practice, that's going to cost you more than if you go to the outpatient one down here. So so, so how does... how
0: complex is that? I mean, that's super complex. Correct. When you think about a system that asks a patient to wind through all of those parts, no wonder the patients are frustrated. And the providers, I'm just want to keep reminding people it's equally as frustrating for the providers. so we so a couple of things Straightforward system
1: right let, let let's let's talk about mental health, and then I want to talk a little bit also today before we wind up about EHR. And medical Please, let's knowledge, talk about how complex
0: they are medicine. Both together. medicine is. Okay, so, mental but, health is. You know, so so health how health does this advisor. affect you? The, so this whole about providers. Let's give you some numbers so people can understand how really true this is. So, twenty-seven percent of medical students even are found to have depressive symptoms. 29 percent of residents have depressive symptoms and over 50 percent of providing physicians have depressive symptoms in canada in 2017 they did a survey of their physicians and only 29 percent of them showed depressive symptoms since the covid infection we now have depression up by 30 or i'm sorry anxiety up 33 percent and Over the majority, the working majority of physicians right now taking care of COVID patients indicate they have stress and depression. Mm -hmm. So you're working with a a group of mentally challenged folks. And if you can imagine watching death and dying every day you would understand that too. So it's not hard for people to understand in the COVID environment, why people are so stressed. But I think what was maybe never understood by many folks listening, was that this environment of provider stress that led to depression and suicide has been there for a decade. And it is just getting worse. We gave away the control to the corporates and they created an environment of high stress where you work, work, work quickly, On patients that you may or may not have relationships with and then you're asked to do EMR and the EMR is just an electronic medical record of the encounter but when you as the provider sit down to use it the system largely is run by one group called EPIC but there are others And when you use it, it asks questions repeatedly that don't really have anything to do with the care you directly just provided. They're questions that provide information for the insurance company to know whether or not they can deny this claim, whether or not you had some pre-existing or some wrong uh, avenue of thinking. Correct, Madi? The reason we do a,
2: a lot of these clicks on the EHR is to help insurance to help insurance and and the idea behind it it's not all bad look ehrs are better than you know chicken scratch that you get from one practice to another and some kind of automation needed to be done but you're absolutely right christine that you somebody comes in with a with a specific problem but i have to ask 10 other questions or ask them about things that have absolutely no bearing on what we're dealing with then not only for insurance problems, but when the quality people come in and look and see, did they, did you check off this box? Did this government regulation get um, uh, taken care of to get approved for MIPS or your, all kinds of financial ties into that. And so you are, you're going through this entire checklist of stuff that really has very little to do with what's going on at that particular moment. And in some cases it creates even more of a problem because then what practitioners have have come to do is literally copy and paste pages and pages of stuff from previous encounters and from other places just to get through that checklist. And then what you have is like an anthology of irrelevant information that probably, probably leads to just as many errors as you're trying to get rid of. But yes, that clicking and that going through that list and making sure these boxes are checked off that don't directly impact clinical clinical decision making and um education of the patient is ast- is astounding. It takes up way, way, way so, too much.
1: You know, I I I remember working on meaningful use back when the ONC was looking at it uh, early days, you know, um rolling out EHRs everywhere and making sure everybody had EHRs and remember the stimulus, you know, everybody had to have EHRs, um, which is electronic health records. I'm using it differently yeah, than Christina's to EMRs. That.
0: Today, that's been in yes. place for a long time. It's been so, there over my no, years. But,
1: but my, point is, my point is, I think that they reduced the time of each visit and then they thought that and correct me if I'm wrong, tell me, is it because they reduce the time so much that they decided, oh, we'll put all of these little uh, warnings and signs so the doctor doesn't forget to cover this and this and this and this and this. And, this. and it, is, it is unconscionable that you don't have time for the patient, but you're supposed to spend all this time instead on a medical record as if that is taking care of a patient.
0: Oh, there's lots of quotes about that. Classic quotes about I no longer work for the patient. I work to the EHR or work towards. You know, it is. It's about making that that record right so that you can get on to the next record. So that it's right, so you can get on to the next record. And that's how you work after hours on the on the computer as a physician, as a nurse. You sit. Who is that the for? Because that's insurance companies It's for the pay. For it's, the for it's for billing. It's, it's the for money. billing. Yep, for billing. You sit there and do these click, click, clicks as a provider after hours to make that record just right. But you're right. It it isn't as if you're making the patient encounter just right. You're only making this record look right. Well, and the other thing that this also brings
1: up, um, and Madhavi, we have talked about this before, how complex medicine has become. Can any physician be expected to keep up with all of the peer reviewed journals and articles that are coming out at the same time as patients have access to the internet and come in with all kinds of esoteric information, mind you, not knowledge, not experience, information.
2: Speak to that. And that's not an entirely bad thing as we've discussed before. It is important for patients to have, you know, it's good to have that autonomy and that that uh, sense of agency—that yes, I know this, or these are what I'm concerned about. This is what I'm going to look into. But that comes back to our fun, our initial, what we touched upon earlier. That if you don't have a relationship, that if I don't have an investment in you, and you don't have faith in me, then it becomes a, a contentious, adversarial um, sort of setup from the get go. And that is not, neither party wants wants that so it's like i'm armed with what i know you're armed with what what you know and who is correct and how many you know sources did you look this and it is it is fundamentally because there is an explosion of bad information not just good information and even these peer-reviewed articles you have to go through them and say does this make sense because everybody feels that they need to publish something or can publish something and i think that it from a generalist perspective you almost feel like, well, I can't keep up with all of this stuff in every single subspecialty and from what my patient knows and 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 you kind of feel like, "Oh well, did I miss something and then then, if the patient knows you as a physician and what what your experience has been and how knowledgeable you are, then you can have a more um, fair dialogue like I think that when you come in with that point of like does this doctor even know what she's talking about? I saw the Yelp reviews. I saw the Google. That's the other thing too that we haven't even touched on is the social media review of providers um, and things. And, and some of it is very good. And some of it is just utter nonsense in terms of what does a five-star review for something even mean when you're talking about a relationship transaction? It's not that I'm just selling you a hairbrush. It's There's so many other things that are going into this. So those reviews are also uh, problematic, but yeah, I think that comes back to having that fundamental uh, trust in one another and and investing in each other's outcomes and if you start from that place then you can take the time to say well this is the information that I have these are why these are the reasons why I think this would be good for you and this is not good for you and then they have the space and and to not threaten the patient either to be like well you don't have an MD I do or you didn't go to medical school there's that kind of that kind of banter I hear as well and that's not I don't think either side wants to approach it that way. Um, but letting them know, so well, what where did you get that information? Let's talk about why you think that might be good for you or why your neighbor had that experience, et cetera. But again, you can't do that in a 10-minute um, patient visit, you know, and have all of these other factors that are beyond your control that you have to address as well. You can't you can't get all that done. But yes, that explosion of information is then what drives people to go see subspecialists and then. Then there's no one driving the bus. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that blind man trying to define what an elephant is. And, you know, one person's looking at the tusk and the other person's looking at the ear and this one's the tail. I'm not sure if that's an elephant or not at the end of the yeah. day. And The um, person
1: that's supposed to coalesce all that information and help the patient make sense of it is the primary care provider with whom you can have a relationship. Christine, yes, since ma'am. you've been on both sides of this issue, talk to us about what are some ways we deal with this? What are some solutions to? obviously, uh, uh, somewhat of a pandemic we're facing with physicians actually committing suicide because of how much stress they're under, while at the same time, we've got a healthcare system that is not providing um, adequately for everybody's needs, including the provider's needs.
0: Right. And the providers feel that. I mean, that's part of the burnout Mm -hmm. is how broken our system is. I've often talked about how the banking system went foul in 2008, and we quickly jumped in as a country, put all sorts of resources into it, and right, wrote, you know, got the boat right up again, and off it went. The banking system was healed. We've had a broken healthcare system for over a decade, and there has been no, you know, let's fix this problem with any sort of uh, major action. So that also wears on the providers. The fact that they recognize that they're working in a system, which is not optimally functioning. It's not providing the best care for the most people. And when you put in that the fire of COVID, it has just accentuated this, uh, this terrible situation we're in where providers are feeling morally injured, They are exhausted at the end of the day, and and, um, they're fearing for their lives now, too, on top of it. You know, they're in um, direct contact with the virus, and they're taking it home to their families, and they're trying not to take it home to their families. And so I think, you know, you add the coronavirus on top of this mental health stress we had already created in our healthcare system for the providers, and it's going to be a real battle working with our... Uh, healthcare care systems, mental health after this virus is over. It was already a challenge. So some of the things that are in place right now, um, they are making, like I said, they are making headway with legislation that would uh, eliminate any questions on applications for medical providers that inquires about their mental health treatment in the past. And uh, right now, many states still have questions that inquire about that and could lead to you not getting employed. And it leads to a real difficult time for physicians on honesty and transparency. And so that's been worked on a little bit. Each state I, I, has... am mm-hmm.
2: sorry, I would even go so far as to say that it's almost like you, we ought to require healthcare providers <laughs> right. to know that they've had a quarterly or right. a whatever, right. uh, regular visit with a mental health provider or checked in and said, yes, I've done these things to show that I have worked on, you know. And that training. is another part
0: of it, Maudie, is they are now requiring some mindfulness, some, some meditation type practices for physicians. Some, they're, they're just talking about mental health in a more open way, providing programming and trying to eliminate the barriers from seeking health, help rather. But, but doesn't that mean that you, you need, need more time? time. Doesn't that require them to also give you more time to actually pursue wellness? That's a corporate issue. That's about profit, and that's not going to change. But the underlying infrastructure problem is being pointed at. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's being pointed at. It's not being addressed yet. The legislation is working on what we can do from that standpoint. But we're in a free market system where the corporations are making as much money as they can off of you in your health care, and they're using the physicians and the providers as tools to get that done. And they are not that interested in your mental health and then slowing you down and keeping you healthy. They really are. That's not their primary goal. So this is a slow and difficult battle, but it's going to get a lot better for everyone when we adopt a single health care system in this country. When we come to senses and decide that everyone over 65 is getting good care and they're getting it efficiently and affordably, and we're going to extend that to the rest of the country. That's my projection, is that if we could do that. If we could get to Medicare for all, we would see a lot of the burner Uh, provider burnout go away because we could fix the EHR system to be effective and helpful. What do you think,
2: Maudie? I, uh, I totally, uh, I, Yes, I agree that having a single payer, or at least getting rid of all of this insurance morass and all of that will be go a long way. And I think that what we had mentioned before, that a lot of patients um, feel like the costs of healthcare, because providers are the face of healthcare, they don't know their insurance agent, they don't know the corporation that's making money, they don't know the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield, they know their provider, and they know the bill came from that office. And they think that we're walking away with all this money and doing all this stuff. Stuff. And and sometimes yes, there's certain procedure-based providers that I mean, that's a whole conversation for a different uh, day. But you know, are is reimbursement and compensation uh, fair if an ophthalmologist gets this amount of money for this amount of time in a cognitive-based procedure like internal medicine or endocrinology or whatever they get paid this much? That's that's a whole different thing. But I think that in general, society in general, in public in general, they think. My doctor's making all this money and my you know nurse practitioners walking away with this why am I paying for this and I'm not getting all that? we're not making all that money. the healthcare dollar, if you look at what the dollar goes to two cents or something crazy like that is actual compensation for providers. the rest of that stuff is a lot of paperwork, bureaucracy, hospital profits, insurance companies, you know everything else that we're subsidizing through and but we are the face of it and so we yeah. We feel like, I don't know, like we're almost like the bad guys in this situation, but we're not sitting high on the hog with all of that stuff. I can assure you that even the ones that are, even subspecialties that are quite profitable, it's not comparable to what other... Um, industries are doing or not doing. And that's not even the point of it. The point of it is that we, I think there's a misconception of what patients think that we're doing along with the same thing. Like, you know, you were only in the, in the room for five minutes. How is it possible? Yeah, I was in the room for five minutes, but I did go and look at your previous chart. And I did that before you came, or once you leave here, I will be calling your urologist to see what's going on. Or I will call the pharmacy to double check that this medicine that I'm planning to put you on doesn't you know interact with what you were put on last week and i will call you next week to see how you're doing with x y or z which now is getting a little bit more compensated with the telemedicine and the telephone follow up but 3 years ago when i would call you a week from now that is bundled into the same visit the compensation for that is in the same visit that we had from a week ago you you talk to a lawyer it doesn't work that way that little hourglass on their time thing Turns on the minute you pick up that phone, and that's not how it works in medicine. And I don't know that it necessarily has to. My my point is just that there's a lot more that goes into that interaction that I think that patients are aren't aware of, and and then and then it comes back to that whole moral injury thing that we were talking offline about how you kind of feel bad you feel guilty because they're unhappy and you don't know what you've done wrong you didn't have the time to do what you wanted to do Um, and maybe you didn't know something that you wanted to know at the time of that visit and then you go back and look and you you try and figure all that out but you know and then you take that with you at the end of the day. That's the other thing that I think contributes for me anyway for physician burnout is that the clock doesn't stop when you walk out that door. I mean the number of times and days and hours that you think shoot I didn't ask them about that. Could it be could have that been a problem? Or boy, I don't know, maybe they did, you know, did they not get that um EKG or whatever you ordered. I, I should call them and make sure that they did because you do feel responsible for something not being done. And I think that on-off switch that sometimes you see in other industries that doesn't exist, in in healthcare. You can't just turn it off. And sometimes I think providers get burnt out. And I also think, and I think there's been some literature on this, that I think that it actually affects female physicians even more so than male physicians in, at least in primary care. Um, And maybe that is that empathy thing, or maybe because 50% of providers in primary care are now female and they have other roles outside of the workplace that also compete you know and that, so through, yeah so i think that wow and um that we're the we're the face of everything to do with as you said before rather like that that we are you know like anything that goes wrong it's the provider that gets and you know
1: you're the guys that patients will sue first that's the other thing so you know we have had so much to talk about today and i think we could go on and and we definitely you know need to visit this topic it's given me completely new insight on what you're facing on the other side of healthcare gives me so much more empathy. and makes me realize we're in the same battle for a better healthcare system. Christine, any last thoughts before we talk about next week's show and head out?
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad that listening uh, listeners could uh, maybe for the first time uh, take a different view on healthcare and see it as this whole conglomerate where the patient and the providers are together trying to create and benefit with um, good healthcare provided, but there's this irritation like a wound, a festering wound. Mm-hmm that we just need to address so that we can all move forward. And I I want, I'm glad that folks have listened because I think the more you understand that the providers are also very concerned about this, this, Mm -hmm. this, they carry home at night with them, the concern Mm -hmm. that the care they're providing isn't getting to you, you can't afford the medicine, you can't get that test done, you're not going to do what they wanted you to do. And they do carry that home. And the burden of carrying that home is now being reflected in an unfortunate high rate of depression and suicide. And I think the way to address it is we're going to fix the system. It's going to happen slowly or quickly, however we get to that. And then when we do, we'll have a new, uh, better way to treat with respect the providers.
2: And with I'll just well, say one, one last deserve. thing, that, that whole like personalized you know, direct pay model is not, uh, feasible for for all patients and i'm very lucky and privileged that i was able to set that up but i recognize every day that this is not what most people can afford or can get and this is how the system should be i think that my patients over the last five years have said to me gosh thank goodness i know that i can get in touch with you and i know that you know what i'm saying and i know that you're gonna do due diligence and figure out what needs to be done the this peace of mind that they have you know people think oh my gosh just because you've given your cell phone to patients are Going to call you all i'll tell you what it's actually almost been the opposite because they have a sense of ease that they're not going to get hit a wall every single time they have to deal with a healthcare provider they it's easy it's accessible it's when they need it for you know the most part and that trust is there and i feel Good when my patients say, "Oh my gosh, you know, thank you for listening, or you, you did the right thing for me, or I got better and I feel better." And so that's it's a good thing. It's not always just about the finances and the bureaucracy. It's just knowing that you did something, night, you know, right and well, and turned out well, and the patient is appreciative. It's a win-win for for both.
1: And that's what we need all the way around. So next time, everyone, we're going to talk about testing, coronavirus testing, and what is going on um, in our state. And uh, I want to thank our producer, Jerry Vermont and Fort Collins Public Media for putting this together. Thank you so much, Madhavi, for coming on the show. And over to you, Christine. Bye, everyone. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Madhavi, very much. Bye, everyone.
2: Bye.